Well, in front of you, just by way of reminder, and if you're new, uh, you've got a couple of things. You've got your handout that has your handout for this week. You'll get that every week. It's got homework for next week. Uh, yes, I know many of you never do the homework, but that's okay. Three of you do. Um, and you harass me every week when I don't hand it out. So there's homework that will prepare you for next week. There's also, um, I'm going to give you just a, a blog each week. I've, I've blogged through this topic for the last months. And so I'm going to give you one each week that's pertinent to the, the next week's uh, lesson. And then this is just a fancy thing that goes in the front of your notebook, which we don't give you. All right. So buy your own stinking notebook. Um, we don't give them out anymore because they sit in a shelf at home and you don't use them anyway. So if you want to stick that in the front of your notebook, you can. All right. So we're going to dig into sanctification. Now, I want to kind of set this up and, and let you know why we're doing this topic. I had a guy email me yesterday and said, what is the book of the Bible we're studying? And I wrote him back and I said, the Bible. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to be in the Bible. We're not going to be in a particular book. We're going to actually start next week with Genesis, and we're going to work through the scriptures. And the topic is sanctification, as you can see. Why sanctification? What's, what's the impetus behind this? Just to kind of set it up, the reason we're doing this is because this past year, as a pastor here at Christ Chapel, um, and having been in this church for almost 38 years, um, I've seen an increase, what I feel like is an in increase in circumstances, situations that are kind of disturbing. And they involve what I call poster couples, uh, poster individuals, poster boys and girls. These are people you would look at and you would say, that is a godly couple. That's a godly man. That's a godly woman. Uh, they have all the outward characteristics. They show up at church every Sunday. They volunteer. They lead a small group. They're active. They come to Bible study. They're, you look at them and you go, man, that is a solid couple. But over the last year, I've had many of those solid couples in my office uh, going through incredible difficulties. We've had situations happen in our church this year that leave the staff and the leadership of this church scratching their head and going, how did that happen? I never would have guessed it would happen to them. Because these are couples, again, that you would look at and go, that's a solid guy, that's a solid girl, that's a solid couple. How did this happen? And it got me thinking about if, if it happens to that group of people, how many more is it happening to? You know, they're not anomalies. These are not just flashes in the pan. So are there any other couples, any other individuals who are on the verge of these same things happening? And we're talking about a variety of different things, addictions and uh, divorce issues and anger problems and sexual issues. It just, they're all over the map. So I started thinking about, you know, why is it that so many of us as Christian, and in particular men, because I'm the men's pastor, why do we struggle with spiritual growth, godliness? We know we're called to godliness. Every guy in this room knows you're supposed to be like Christ. You know you're supposed to increase in your godliness. I assume it's part of the reason why you're here, second to the breakfast. Um, you're here because you want to know more about God. You want to know more about the Bible. You want to know how to increase in Christ likeness. 
So if that's true of us, and I think it's true of a lot of people who show up at church, why doesn't it happen? What prevents it from happening? How does somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ end up in the high weeds? End up addicted to porn, addicted to alcohol, end up in divorce, end up doing things that we would deem inappropriate, illegal, immoral. How does that happen? Well, it all ties back to this issue of sanctification. And as I started thinking about this topic, what came into my mind is a story written by Robert Louis Stevenson called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You may be familiar with it. It's an old story written in the 1800s, and I don't know anything about Robert Louis Stevenson other than the books that he wrote. I don't know about his faith. I don't know if he was a believer, but he obviously was exposed to things of the faith because of some of the things written in his book. These are just a few of the book covers for this story. And if you're familiar with the story, it involves Dr. Jekyll, who's a doctor, and he, he loves to experiment with chemicals. And he begins to experiment with making a concoction, this cocktail that he drinks, that changes his personality. The problem with it is that Every time he does it, it changes his personality to the opposite extreme of who he really is. He's a good man, a moral man, a, a respected man, and when he drinks this concoction, he turns into the polar opposite of that person. And then the more he does it, he begins to lose control over his ability to control which personality shows up when, and pretty soon, the Mr. Hyde starts taking over his life. And it's really interesting, as you go through the book, there's a whole bunch of uh, quotes in the book by Dr. Jekyll as he begins to wrestle with this personality disorder that he ha has, this bipolar personality disorder. Because again, he's this guy who suddenly finds himself unable to control his alter ego. And his alter ego does some things, murders a man, does things that are not who he is, and he can't seem to control what's going on. Here's just a few of them. Listen to what he says, and think about how biblical these are, how spiritual they are. He says, I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And he began to realize that this alter ego was not just some strange ego that showed up, some alter ego. It was actually part of who he really was. It was always there. The chemical just let it out. And then he goes on and he says, good and evil are so close as to be chained together in the soul. Now, guys, what I want us to wrestle with over the next 12 weeks as we go through this study is that that's the reality for every guy in this room that you have within you the capacity for both good and evil. They're chained together in the soul. And you know that. That shouldn't be news to anybody. There should be no one shocked. Really? I didn't know that. Because it, it happens, right? You, you wrestle with it. I wrestle with it. Dr. Jekyll wrestled with it. He says, I was slowly losing hold of my original and better self and becoming slowly incorporated with my second and worse self. He was losing grip. He was losing control. He was no longer the man he wanted to be, and he was becoming a man he really didn't want to be or aspire to be. And I'm going to end with this one. It says, in each of us, two natures are at war, the good and the evil. All our lives, the fight goes on between them, and one of them must conquer. But in our own hands lies the power to choose. Now, I don't want you to miss this last phrase. What we want most to be, we are. What we want most to be, we are. Again, that's not 
a quote from the Bible, but it could be because it's very biblical. What you want most to be, you are. So what is it you want most in life? I just want you to stop just a second. What is it you want most in life? And the overly spiritual side of you would go, oh, I want to be like God. I want to be like Christ. I want to be godly. And I don't doubt that. But if you had to take a look at your life, if you had to take a look at the last 10 years of your life, what would be the, the, the proof of what you truly want most? Because what you want most to be, you will be. And I'm going to tell you that most of us are driven by our happiness more than anything else. And even these couples that I've been meeting with that, that are going through marital issues and, and individuals who are struggling with addictions and habits that they really don't want to do, what drives those behaviors ultimately is a desire for happiness, a desire that I want to do what will bring me the greatest amount of joy, fulfillment, self-fulfillment. It drives us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. It drives us to do things to other people in order to get from them things that we want, that we think we have to have in order to be, quote, happy. But what we're going to see is this, this topic of sanctification is really all about holiness. What does God want for you? God wants your holiness. It's not that God's a cosmic killjoy and he doesn't want you to ever enjoy any kind of happiness. I don't think there's anything biblical about that. But if you make your happiness your primary objective, you will become what you most desire. And happiness is usually driven by circumstantial things, stuff, materialism. If I buy that, I feel happy. If I do this, I get some, some kind of gratification. But it fades, right? It goes away, and then you've got to have more of it or something similar to it. It's what drives divorce. You know, I've had way too many guys sit in my office and go, well, I just don't love her anymore. Okay, what are you going to do about that? Well, I'm going to divorce her. Why? Because I love her more. Well, what happens when you fall out of love with her? Well, that's not going to happen. Oh, really? How did it happen the first time? Well, we never should have gotten married. I mean, I hear it all. And what's driving their decision-making is this desire for happiness. I want to be happy. I want to do what makes me happy, even if it hurts those around me. So holiness, what is holiness? Well, let's, let's look at what the scriptures say. Now, this, this is a verse you're very familiar with. It's in 1 Peter. Uh, you guys have heard me say before that this is, this is not a coffee mug verse. You don't put this in a coffee mug and sit it on your desk. You don't put it on a plaque and put it on your desk. This is a, a verse you may memorize and you try to forget it as quickly as possible. Because it's convicting. Listen to what he says. Now, you must be holy in everything you do. Now, let's do a quick Greek word study. What does this mean in the Greek? It means you must be holy in everything you do. Now, stop and think about what Peter's saying here. He's telling you and I, you must be holy in everything you do. Everything. Every area of your life, every facet of your life, your pleasure time, your work time, your leisure time, your... Everything you do, you must be holy. Then he makes it worse. Just as God who chose you is holy. So what's the criteria? 
It's God. It's not me. It's not Cody McQueen. It's not Ted Kitchens. It's not anybody other than God. He's the standard. Be holy as God is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy, says God. So Peter's, you know, man, if you don't want to listen to me, listen to God. God tells you and I that we must be holy because he is holy. That is a high, high standard, right? It's an impossible standard. It's the kind of standard we look at and go, man, there's no way. I can't pull that off. I can't be like God. But here's God's will for you. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. His will is that you be holy. You ever wanted to know God's will? Every one of us, you know, it's one of the Questions that gets asked more than any other question. What is God's will? Should I marry this individual? Should I buy this house? Should I take that job? Should I move to this city? What is God's will? And when I ran across this verse years ago, I didn't even know it existed in the Bible. I'd been searching for God's will all my life, and I read this, and it's, this is God's will. And I'm like, yes, this is the question I've always wanted answered. And then I read the second half, and I was highly disappointed. Wait a minute. I, that no, no, no. What, what job should I take? What house should I buy? You know, what, should we have more kids? Should we do this? Should we do that? And then I read, this is his will, be holy. See, God's far more concerned about you being holy than he is about what job you have. Because he'd rather have you be a holy garbage collector than an unholy lawyer. He wants you to be holy and he wants me to be holy. What do we do with that? How do we deal with this when we've got these two natures chained within us? And while that's coming from a secular book written in the 1800s by some guy that I've never met, it is highly biblical. I have and you have two natures within you. And that's what makes sanctification so difficult. So let's, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. And this is going to be our main text for this morning. It's Romans chapter 7. It's, it's one of my favorite texts because it allows me for, for just a short period of time to understand and relate to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is an idol for many of us in the church. We set him on a pedestal and we go, man, what an amazing guy. He wrote most of the New Testament. He helped start churches all over Asia Minor. He was an incredible witness for God. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was... Um, shipwrecked, all these things happened to him and he never walked away from his faith. He was an icon of spiritual virtue. And yet, listen to what he says. The trouble is with me, for I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. You ever felt like that? Man, this is my life. This is how I feel almost every day. Why did I just do that? Why did I just say that? I'll give you an example from this last week. Uh, it was, I woke up early, my wife's asleep, and I left all the lights off, and I went, we have this, this high boy piece of furniture that's got, you know, goes really high with drawers. And I was getting something out of the lower drawer, and I get out what I wanted, and I lift it up, and my wife had left open the top drawer, and I hit the corner of that drawer, right on my forehead. And I thought of expletives that have not even yet been invented. I mean, I was cussing like a sailor, but I was cussing under my breath because I didn't want my wife to wake up and hear what I was saying. And I was, you know, I got blood coming out of my head. I'm just, I'm so angry. And then 
the pain subsided enough to where I stopped and I went, what in the world is wrong with me? And I look over because I'm in a panic that my wife has woken up and heard me going through this fit. And she's, gratefully, she's asleep. But I suddenly thought, what, what possessed me? Well, it's that old nature. It hadn't gone away, and it doesn't take much to make it show up. Just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Suddenly he's there in all his glory. And I was saying things I didn't want to say, thinking things I didn't want to think, doing what I hate. And he goes on and says, if I know what, that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with it, that the law is good. In other words, God's commands are good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. Now, this sounds like a cop-out on Paul's part. It's like he's going, it's not my fault. It's just in nature. You know, it's, it's doctor, it's Mr. Hyde. I can't control him anymore. But that's not what he's saying because he goes on and he says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I should not expect anything good from my sinful nature. When I hit my head in a drawer, I should expect my sinful nature to want to cuss like a sailor. That's what he wants to do. And he says, I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. You catch the, just the frustration in his voice as he describes his own life as an apostle. But if I want, if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. Again, this is not a cop-out. He's not justifying his behavior. He's not blaming it on his sin nature. He's just recognizing the fact that I have within me two natures. You have within you two natures. So he says, I've discovered this principle of life, that I want to do what's right, but I inevitably do what's wrong. That is the story of every man in this room, whether you want to admit it or not. I want to do what's right, but I end up doing what's wrong. I want to be godly, but I do what's ungodly. I want to please God, but I end up displeasing God by my behavior. Paul says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that it's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Now, here's where we're going, just so you know. What we're going to do over the next weeks is we're going to study this topic in order that we might understand why we do what's wrong when we want to do what is right. And how do we deal with that? What's the solution? What's the cure? How do we live as who we truly are? Sons of God, heirs of the kingdom of God. Listen to what he wrote to the Galatians. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. See, this battle is going on within you and Paul was willing to admit it. He wrote to the Romans and he basically shared his gut. And one of the things I want to see happen over the next weeks is that around these tables, you guys will let down your guard and you will share your gut with one another. You will expose the evil within you and say, you know what? I really do struggle with my sin nature in these ways. Because here's what really concerns me. These poster boys and girls, these couples that represent godliness in our church that you would look at and I look at and go, man, they're a solid couple. They have been living a lie for the most part for years. One of these couples had been in my, my wife and I's small group for seven years. 
And they've been having marital problems for 25 years. So all the way back when they were in our small group, they were having issues with anger, with abuse. And they would show up every week for small group. How y'all doing? Oh, we're great. We're great. God's so good. We got such a great marriage. She wouldn't share. He wouldn't share. 25 years later, they're on the verge of divorce. Because they wouldn't admit that they have a sin nature and that they struggle. And the worst thing you and I can do in our life is to refuse to admit that I have a sin nature and I struggle with it. Because you do. And I do. But there is hope and there is help. That's what sanctification is all about. So God says his will for you is that you be holy. In the ESV, it simply says, this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? Your sanctification. That's the word. That's the topic we're going to study over the next weeks. Your sanctification, my sanctification. But it's the most misunderstood and misapplied doctrine in the the whole entire Bible as far as I'm concerned. I can count on one hand how many sermons I've heard on sanctification over the years. We brush on it. We kind of talk about it. We talk about growth in Christ likeness all the time. You should grow in Christ. You should do this. You should do that. You should be more godly. And then we tell you how to do it. Read your Bible more. Study this. Do that. Go to a Bible study. Memorize scripture. We give you all these tips and techniques and steps that you can take to hopefully become more godly. And then we wonder why we're not more godly. That's why I think it's so important to spend the kind of time we're going to spend talking about this topic because we're either going to ignore it because we don't understand it or we're going to abuse it. And you end up with legalism, which gets you nowhere. I love this quote from Michael Barrett. He says, Christianity has become for some people nothing more than a theoretical set of beliefs that have little bearing on life. In other words, it's just this set of rules and beliefs that really don't apply because it was written 2,000 plus years ago. It's a great book, but it doesn't apply. For others, it's a rigid set of standards that relentlessly rule life, and that's where most of us live our life as Christians, just a set of rules. Do these things and you will be godly. Again, I've had so many guys, so many women who sat in my office and said, man, I've done everything the church has told me to do, and I'm no more godly than I was 10 years ago. I've been to Bible study. I've been to Sunday school. I come to church every Sunday. I've volunteered for this, and I've volunteered for that. We lead a small group. We've given. We've tithed. We've done everything the church has told me to do, and our marriage is still not doing well, and my life is not doing well. What is missing? And they're looking. That's why self-help books are the hottest selling book within the Christian community. Because we're all looking for tips and techniques. Just tell me the five steps to get more holy. And I'm not going to give you five steps to getting holy. That's not what this is all about. Because that just turns into a whole set of rules. As a matter of fact, years ago, I did a study and some of you may have been there. It was called the lure of lust. And it had to do with pornography. It was the highest attended study I've ever done in this church. Men came out of the woodwork. I think they thought I was going to show videos. Um, I don't know what it was, but man, they came out of the woodwork because we were going to talk about porn. And even the posters I put up, I got so much flack from the church because I had posters and it looked like a fishing lure, but it had a woman's legs. And the elders were like, you got to take those down. Well, I, I used to be in advertising. I'm like, no, it works. And it worked. Guys came out of the woodwork and we had them just flocking to come to this study. But here's what I learned. It didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because I spent way too much time telling guys how to not get into porn and how to get out of porn. 
bounce your eyes, you know, put a blocker on your computer. It, it, and it wasn't that it wasn't based on scripture. There was lots of scripture, but at the end of the day, it was all about you trying to do something to help you escape the effects of pornography. Here's what I learned. It doesn't work. Tips and techniques do not work because this is a work of God. Sanctification is a work of God. So what, what is it? If God wants me to be sanctified and you to be sanctified, what is it? Well, if you go back to the Greek, and this time I'm serious, it comes from the word hagiosmos. And we're going to look at this word a lot over the next weeks. It, it, it just simply means holiness, consecration. It, it can mean set apartness, that God has set you apart. God has made you unique. So that's the core meaning behind sanctification. And the Greeks used it to refer to anything that had been set apart for religious purposes. It could be a building, it could be an altar, it could be an individual like a priest. The Greeks used it to refer to anything that had a religious purpose or connotation. They were hagiosmos. Well, the Christians took it and kind of repurposed the word to mean separation from secular to the sacred that you were holy, you were set apart, sanctified by God for a specific purpose. And that's how Paul uses it. That's how the New Testament uses it. You and I have been set apart by God. We belong to God. We are his children. You don't belong to yourself anymore. God redeemed you and he set you apart. He sanctified you. So if you want a, a simple definition, here's one that may help you. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. Everything that's made has a purpose. And every one of us are guilty of using things for purposes they weren't intended for. Well, think about this. A pen is sanctified when used to write. If you use it for that purpose, you're using it for, in its sanctified state. If you use it to pry open a can, you're not using it in its sanctified state. You're desecrating the purpose of the pen. Eyeglasses are sanctified when used to improve sight. If you use them to hold open a door, you're desecrating the purpose of the eyeglasses. In the theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose God intends. What is God's purpose for you? Well, you've already seen in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, his will for you is that you be holy. So anytime you and I use this body, our minds, our hands for purposes other than what God intends, we desecrate ourselves. We make ourselves unholy. And so that's why this, this topic is so important, guys. Because if you think about all the people in this community, all the people in this church, all the people in this world who claim to be followers of Christ, who do things and use their bodies for purposes other than what God intended, it's a problem. And that's how we end up in the high weeds. That's how we end up in counseling. That's how we end up in divorce court is because we aren't living as who we are. So sanctification and holiness are, are permanently attached. You cannot separate the two. They are synonymous. You cannot be sanctified and not be holy. And that's important for us to understand because sanctification is really a state. It's a standing. You, as a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are already sanctified. You've been set apart by God. You are his son, his heir, his child. You belong to him. And that's why when my mom died yesterday morning at 540, she went directly to be with the Lord because she was sanctified. She was set apart. 
not based on anything she's done for the last three months because she's been in a coma for the last three months, but based on her relationship with Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to those, speaking to them, sanctified in Christ Jesus, past tense, you're already sanctified, called to be what? Saints. So you got this kind of past tense, present tense. You already are, but you got to keep moving on. There's a aspect of this that we have to grasp the fact that I am already set apart. I am already who God has deemed me to be, but I need to live like who I truly am. And that's what he means when he says, you're called to be saints. And that word saint comes from the same Greek word, hagios, holy one, set apart one. Now there's nobody in the room that I know of who refers to themselves on a regular basis as a saint. Now, years ago, there used to be a guy that came to our Thursday night group, and the first time I met him, he had on his name tag, St. Dennis. And it really just kind of irritated me. He was new. I never met the guy before in my life. And I walked up and I said, okay, explain your name tag. This is before we had him printed out. So he had handwritten, really big, all caps letter, St. Dennis. I said, explain that. He goes, well, the Bible says I'm a saint. If I'm a saint, I'm going to claim it and I'm going to live by it. And I went... Okay, okay. It still irritated me. You know, like, God, what a cocky guy, you know. And, and then there's another guy that comes on Thursday nights, and every time I see him, he walks up and I'll say, Hey, how are you doing? He goes, Not too bad by, uh, for a sinner saved by grace. And it irritates the snot out of me. And finally, one day I said, Would you stop saying that? And he goes, Why? It's true. I said, No, it's not true. You're not a sinner saved by grace, you're a saint. Now, I know he sins just like I sin, but see, it's, an, it's a matter of identity. What's your identity? Well, I'm a sinner. I won't say by grace, but I'm still a sinner. No, you're a saint. When God looks at you, when God looks at me, guess what? He does not see you as a sinner. And I know that's hard, you know, hard for you to understand. But when God looks at you, he sees you through the blood of Christ and he sees a saint, a son of God a redeemed child of God. And if we walk around constantly saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, guess what? You're going to think of yourself as a sinner who just keeps on sinning. But I need to think of myself as a saint. And St. Dennis is actually right. And I think we ought to have on every one of your name tags, St. Jim's, St. John, St. Larry, Whatever your name is, because you know what? I need to be reminded every day of my true identity. I'm a saint. I may not look like it. I may not act like it, but I'm a saint. And I need to be reminded of that. And I think that's why this word is so prevalent and so prominent in the scriptures. Here's, here's how it's used in the New Testament. Holy Ghost, same word, hagios. Holy city, Jerusalem, same word. Holy angels, holy prophets, holy covenant, See, see it's, it's a word that should resonate with every one of us, that I am a saint. I have been set apart by God. I belong to him. It is my true state. And if I die today, I get to go be with him. I may go outside today and find I've got a flat and cuss like a sailor because I've got a flat. But guess what? If in the process of restoring the tire to my car, I have a heart attack and go to be with him, I get to go to be with him even though I cuss like a sailor. Why? Because my standing. I am a saint. 
You are a saint. But here's the other reality about sanctification that you and I struggle with the most. It is a process. It's a process. I am a saint, but here's the deal, guys. You got to live like who you are. If you have kids, don't you want your kids to live up to whatever standard you have in your home? Don't you want them to live up to your name? Don't you want them to carry your name well out in the community? That's what God wants for you and I. I have set you apart, he says. I have redeemed you. I sent my son to die for you. You are a saint. Live like one. Live like who you are. It was really interesting. Uh, my mom's been in hospice care, and we had a new hospice nurse show up yesterday, and she she talked to us after my mom had passed. She said, I walked into the room and I knew I was in the presence of a godly woman. My mom was in a coma, but she said there was just something about her. There was something about her, her presence. There was something about that room that I knew I was in the presence of a godly woman. See, that's what people should feel about you and I, that I'm in the presence of somebody who is godly, somebody who is a saint, somebody who is different, somebody who lives not like I live. What is it about you? It doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you don't cuss. doesn't mean you don't sin. doesn't mean you don't have immoral thoughts at times, but that guys that you were constantly striving to be who God wants you to be. See, I'm already sanctified, but I'm being sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the help of the body of Christ and with the direction of the word of God. I am constantly being more sanctified. I am more sanctified today than I was five years ago, most certainly 10 years ago. I am much more sanctified than I was when I was in college. And if you'd known me then, you would go, yeah, you really are. See, God is constantly taking me further and further. That's why Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, hagiosmos, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. I am to strive for it. Yes, I am set apart. Yes, I am sanctified. But I am to strive for more holiness in my life every day. It has to be my highest priority. That's why that little quote from Dr. Jekyll, what you want most, what you desire most, you will become. Do you desire holiness See, he wrote to the Romans in chapter 6, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, at the present time, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification. Further holiness. Greater godliness. More Christ-likeness. That's got to be your goal. And yet, I, I, I think so many of us wrestle with I'm, I'm still making my, my life a slave to sin. I still see myself as a sinner. And if you see yourself as a sinner, guess what? You're going to concentrate on sinning. But if you think of yourself as a saint, you'll have a different attitude. He goes on and says, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, I was saved at seven. Someday I'm going to die. I got salvation at seven. I'm going to get glorification when I die. And in the meantime, I live in the gospel gap. I'm living in this period of time between salvation and glorification where sanctification is taking place, increasing godliness, becoming more and more like Christ with each passing day. That is God's goal. That's God's will. So here's the reality about sanctification. It's the will of God. He wants you to be sanctified, set apart, holy, 
living as who you are, and it's his work in you. You can't do it in your own flesh. If you try, you'll fail. And so many of us have tried to do this in our own strength, and it, it just gets you nowhere. It has a beginning and an end, salvation and ultimate glorification. My 98-year-old mother is with my dad right now in heaven, and I, I would love to see that reunion. I would love to see what they're talking about. I would love to be part of that conversation. I have no idea the age of my mom and dad. He died at 93. She was 98 when she passed yesterday. I don't think they're 93 and 98. I don't know if they're 20, 18, 14, 30. It doesn't really matter. But here's what I know. They are rejoined together. They're with Jesus Christ. They're with God the Father. They are perfectly whole. They are perfectly joyful. And everything is as it should be and as it was intended to be. It has a beginning and has an end. And it's going to require your participation. See, if you take the attitude, let go and let God, he's going to do it all. Yes, it's the work of God, but you get to participate. You have to participate. You have to willingly want to desire holiness. And it's non-negotiable. Now, you cannot pursue holiness, and guess what will happen? You will become less and less holy. You will become like your old self. That old nature will take over. And that's how we end up with people in pastor's offices and in counseling offices and in court and all kinds of places because they have not made holiness a high priority. It's non-negotiable. And finally, it's proof of your sonship. This is the most important one to me. I love what Paul tells the Corinthians. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of your God. He's telling these believers in Corinth that this is the reality. You are a child of God. You have been. And every time you live in holiness, every time you pursue holiness, it is a reminder to you and to those around you that you're a child of God. I know many of you guys really well. I have watched many of you guys over the years, and I have seen you grow in godliness. And it proves to me that you truly are a son of God. One of the things I ask you to pray about is I've got an older brother who's uh, nine years older than me, and he is not a believer. And he's really wrestled with the loss of my mom because he fears death. And he's not convinced that there's something out there. He used to be a pastor. He wasn't a believer when he was a pastor. And so now he's struggling with loss. He's struggling with these realities. And I ask you to pray for him because here's, here's what he's wrestling with. He doesn't know what's next. He has no hope. He's not sanctified. He's not been set apart. And so when his siblings, my, my brother, other brother and my sister and I talk about our joy in our mother's passing, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. But see, I, I, I'm sad, but I mourn as someone who has hope. I know what comes next. She was a daughter of the king, and she's now with the king. So which are you? You a sinner or a saint? More importantly, which one do you aspire to be? Are you a sinner saved by grace, or are you a saint, a redeemed child of God, holy in God's eyes, and desirous of living as who you truly are? I want to go back to that last little phrase, what we want most to be, we are. Well, here's what Paul says. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, the answer is Christ. He's the answer for your salvation. He's ultimately the answer for your glorification. And he's most definitely the answer for your sanctification. You have everything you need for life and godliness, and it's found in Jesus Christ. 
So my prayer for you, my hope for you over these next weeks is that you will embrace your true identity and you will encourage one another to pursue the life you've been called to live, the will of God for you, your sanctification, your holiness. So here's your discussion questions for this morning. I want you to go back to that little phrase, what we want most to be, we are. And I want you to discuss ways in which that's been proven true in your life. How have you seen that lived out by the things that you've desired and how they've really shaped who you are? Now, if you're not willing to be open and honest about you, talk about the guy next to you. Okay, throw him under the bus. But my prayer is that you will become more and more open as we move through this series. Then I want you to read 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, and I want you to just talk about the implications of those verses and what they may have to do with this topic of sanctification. And finally, take some time to pray for one another. And specifically, pray for your growth in godliness, that you would, this semester, take this topic more seriously than you've ever taken it before, that we truly might become the men that God has called us to be in our homes, in our communities, in our workplace, in this church, and in this world. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their presence here. More than anything else, I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit within them. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to embrace this idea of our sanctification wholeheartedly, that from this moment forward, we would say, I want to be who you've called me to be. I want to live differently. I want to live according to the power that lives within me in the form of the Holy Spirit. I want to live according to your word with a desire to know your word more and apply it to my life. I want to live in the community in which you place me, Christ Chapel. I want to be a vibrant, contributing member of this body. And let it start at these tables, Father. Would you open up hearts and minds and lives as they talk and as they pray over the next weeks? And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.